Welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. I'm Andy Bromberger. And I'm Rob Caldor. Andy, different episode today? Different episode. Today we are doing another podcast for Live at Yours. And before we do anything, have a listen to this music. Heard that before? Andy, I have heard it before. It feels very wedding. It does sound very wedding because there are lots and lots of weddings that use that. It's Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And what we're doing at Live at Yours this season is that we are actually listening at the concert to eight seasons. We are listening to four seasons of Vivaldi and looking at the seasons of Northern Europe. And we are looking at the four seasons of Piazzolla, who is an Argentine composer, and the four seasons of Buenos Aires. Ah, okay, a bit of Southern Hemisphere. That's exactly right. We're going to look at Vivaldi first, but before we actually look at the music of Vivaldi, I thought, Rob, that we should probably have an idea or a look around what the Baroque period is, when it was, and what was happening during the Baroque period. I don't know a lot about the Baroque period, so tell me what was going on. Okay, the Baroque period is roughly from 1600, but it finishes in 1750, and it's finished in 1750. In fact, it's one of the only periods that has a finish date, and 1750 because that's the year that Bach died. And although there were composers writing music after Bach died, because the period was really very much over by then, Other composers like Handel could continue writing for a couple of years, but the Baroque period finished when Bach died. Well, he was the greatest composer of the latter part of the Baroque period. So if we look at what's happening in the world during this 150 years, we have the acceptance of Copernicus's 16th century theory that the planets didn't actually revolve around the Earth, but revolved around the Sun, and that was confirmed by Galileo. We have the invention of the telescope. We have the philosophers, Hobbes, Spinoza, Locke. We have Rubens. We have Rembrandt. We have Shakespeare. We have foreign trade. We have colonization. We have the 30 years war in the German areas. We have Louis XIV, who reigns from 1643 to 1715, the longest reigning monarch of anyone in Europe. We have the growing middle class and, you know, this whole period is called the age of absolutism because the monarchs were so, so, so important. Musically, we have composers like Bach, Handel, both Scarlatti's, we have Vivaldi, Purcell, we have Telemann, Lully, Corelli, Abelnoni, Rameau, Monteverdi, Pachelbel, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And musically, there are a whole lot of changes in the Baroque. Music moved into something that we call tonality, the concept of major and minor. I think people think that tonality has been around forever, but it actually comes about in the Baroque period. And we also have a whole lot of ideas that we sort of almost take for granted in music, like opera, cantata, concerto, sonata. These things actually came about 
in the Baroque period. I mean, and it sounds like the beginning of the modern world was going on there, as well as challenging of ideas, a bit of challenging of church and state relationships, a bit of colonisation going on. So it's a really fascinating period of time. And musically, it sounds like lot going on. And yeah, and you're absolutely right when you say the beginning of modernism, because that's what I always think with music, that it's from the Baroque period on that music sort of sounds like the music that we, we think about and the music that we listen to and understand that starts in the Baroque period. And the piece that we're going to be listening to Vivaldi's Four Seasons, I suppose we need to have a little bit of a talk about Vivaldi. Who is this bloke, Vivaldi? What did his friends call him? Well, probably Tony. His name was Antonio's. Well, they actually called him the Red Priest. He started studying for the priesthood at 15 and he was ordained at 25 and apparently he had red hair. So they used to call him the Red Priests. So he was born in Venice in 1678 and he died impoverished in Vienna in 1741. He was this brilliant, brilliant musician and he spent most of his life, almost 30 years of his compositional life, actually writing music for an all-female music ensemble in an abandoned home for children. So in this period, you know, there were a lot of kids who were either abandoned by their parents, you know, they had 15 children and they couldn't feed them all, or the parents had died and you had all these orphans and they didn't know what to do with them. So they actually put them all into these homes. And in the homes for boys, they often taught them a lot of music. And some of the great musicians and performers came from these homes. And they also taught them a trade. But the girls, they also taught a lot of music too. And this was a very, very well-established school with a fantastic choir and music that Vivaldi wrote for them. Well, I mean, it's quite an orphanage, then, isn't it? It's like it's like absolutely. It's, yeah. I think it's a it's, it's a it's a good use of orphanage. But well, imagine, like you know, oh yeah, and Vivaldi, he's like he helps us out. Yeah, kind exactly. Of thing. Yeah. Like, His death is actually quite sad too, because like so many composers of the time, they face financial difficulty later in their lives as music changes and he's still writing the same stuff he's written when he's 20 and he's now an older man and musical tastes have changed. And so he sold a sizable number of his manuscripts for almost nothing to move to Vienna. And we don't really know why he moved to Vienna. You know, things were pretty good for him in Venice, but we think it might have been because Charles VI said, come over and be my composer. So he trots off to Vienna. By the time he gets there, Charles has died and his successor isn't interested in hiring him. And at this period of time, if you don't have a patron looking after you, you've got no way of employment. And he died impoverished not much later. A terrible, terrible demise for this fabulous composer. And what's also interesting is that his music died too. And throughout the whole of the classical period and the romantic period and into the 20th century, no one really had heard of Vivaldi. And it was only in the early 20th century that some of his manuscripts were found and people saw the brilliance that is Vivaldi. So you're telling me the Four Seasons was not played for like a couple of hundred years? Yes. That's wild. Yeah. It's really It's really incredible, isn't it? And in fact, one of his pieces was found in 2006. Wow. You know, this music sort of literally being found in attics and cellars throughout Italy, I suppose. The way the music is written is consistent and people can pick it up and go, "Mm, Mm. this is how it'll sound. And 
have a pretty good pump that's actually how it was intended to be exactly. played. It's a whole field of music, this early music. The scores of this Baroque period aren't nearly as precise as, say, the 19th and the 20th century. But you're absolutely right. We can look at it and we can see his music and we'll know what he was writing. And in fact, he was prolific. He wrote about 500 concertos, about 230 for the violin and others for bassoon and cello and oboe and flute and viola de gamba and recorder and lute and mandolin. He wrote sacred music. He wrote 50 operas. He wrote symphonias. He wrote 90 sonatas for chamber music. He was prolific. I mean, it's amazing how much material he wrote. There obviously will still be music popping up from now and then that hasn't been found because, I mean, that's such a lot. It's not backed up on a drive. This will continue to happen throughout time is that there will be pieces just found by people from earlier periods as people look in that box and find things. I mean, these sorts of things happen continuously. But now let's look at the Four Seasons. The Four Seasons are a group of four violin concerti each giving the expression of the time of the year. And they were composed around 1718 to 1720 when he was the court chapel master in an area called Mantua. Mantua is in northwest Italy and they were published in about 1725 with a series of other concertos. Now, the inspiration for these concertos is not very well known. We don't know why he wrote them. Sometimes people think that he was actually recording the seasons around the area in Mantua where he was living, but we don't really know. But they were a total revolution in the musical concept. Vivaldi represents everything in the world at the time in these pieces of music. We hear flowing creeks, we hear bird singings, each bird being specified with a specific characteristic. We hear shepherds, we hear barking dogs, we hear buzzing flies, we hear storms, we hear drunken dancers, all of these things absolutely identifiable in this piece of music. Did he call it the Four Seasons? Yes, he did, because each of these concerti have the title of Spring, Summer, Winter and Autumn. So yes, and we know that because he published an accompanying sonnet to each of the pieces of music. And we assume that he wrote the sonnets. He's written these sonnets, and then he's written program music where he depicts musically everything that was in these sonnets. And so what I want to do for you, Rob, is I want to read you the sonnet for each of these seasons, and then we can listen to some of the music. Springtime is upon us. The birds celebrate her return with festive song and murmuring streams are softly caressed by the breezes. Thunderstorms, those heralds of spring, roar, casting their dark mantle over heaven. Then they die away to silence, and the birds take up their charming songs once more. On the flower-strewn meadows, the leafy branches rustle overhead. The goat herd sleeps, his faithful dog beside him. Lead by the festive sounds of rustic bagpipes, nymphs and shepherds lightly dance beneath spring's beautiful canopy. What Vivaldi also did, which was so important in the evolution of music, was he was the guy who broke up the concerto. And I suppose we need to talk very quickly about what is a concerto. A concerto is a piece of music for an ensemble and a soloist. And from the Baroque period, they have three movements, fast, slow, fast. 
And that really came about by Vivaldi writing so many of them. And, you know, Vivaldi was so important, just a quick aside, is that, like, even Bach thought he was amazing and would transcribe his concerti to work out exactly what he'd done. So, you know, this is a really, really important composer of the latter part of the Baroque. A musician's musician. A musician's musician. So let's look at the first movement. And I played a little bit of spring for you before. It's concerto number one. It's in E major. If we think about the beginning of spring, as in Vivaldi's spring, it starts with this crispness of a typical spring day in this area of Italy. And we hear a chorus of birds and streams. Now, the first movement, this beginning, we can hear five different types of birdsong right in this beginning. And you can actually stop each of these little bits being played by the solo violin and by the first violin and go, okay, that's a, and that's a, and that's a. So we hear exactly what he is trying to say about spring. These five types of birds are singing in spring. Let's have a listen. remarkable and then we suddenly hear a thunderstorm you know spring is all about thunderstorms and we hear this in again in the music let's have a listen And you definitely can hear that as a thunderstorm. And again, very vivid what he's It's evocative, isn't it? It, re- it really is. And the next, the slow movement, so you remember this is a concerto and each of the concertos have three movements. In the slow movement, we even hear the dog barking. The goat herd has fallen asleep and we hear the viola part and it's an absolute dog. Let's have a listen. elegant dog. It, it is a very a better behaved than either of our dogs, but <laughs> not, nonetheless you could hear the wolfing. When I talk about those birds, I say, you know, they don't, they don't sound like Australian birds and that dog definitely doesn't sound like our dogs either. Now let's move on to summer now. So the concerto number two is in G minor and the sonnet says, under a harsh season, fired up by the sun, languishes man languishes the flock and burns the pine. We hear the cuckoo's voice, then sweet songs of the turtle dove and fincher herd. 
Soft breezes stir the air, but threatening, the north wind sweeps them aside suddenly. The shepherd trembles, fearing violent storms and his fate. The fear of light, lightning and fierce thunder robs his tired limbs of rest as gnats and flies buzz furiously around. Alas, his fears were justified. The heavens thunder and roar with the hail, cut off the heads of the wheat and damages the grain. Now what we hear in this is that the summer starts slowly with the weather is just too hot for movement. The air is almost at a standstill. The birds are chirping lazily in the breeze. You know, it's just like that calm of intensity before a storm actually hits and the shepherd's beginning to worry. Very languid. Languid's a perfect word for it. If you're not sitting by the pool sipping a G&T, you're not doing the right thing. No. <laughs> so then, you know, we have the second movement. And the second movement, it starts sort of slowly and, and as you said, languidly. The shepherd's starting to get really worried because he thinks that there's going to be this terrible storm. And we can hear the buzzing of the of the flies as they start to get more excited because they know that this storm's just about to hit. It's very moving. Isn't it? I just find this piece has so much more eloquence to it when you're actually understanding what Vivaldi's trying to say. I mean, those violins in the background, the strings in the background, you know, you can feel the flies and the gnats sort of buzzing around. It's just so evocative. It's just quite incredible. And then the last movement, it's, you know, the storm's happening. And this is just terrible for this poor old peasant because, you know, if he loses his crop, he loses his income. And we can hear the anxiety in this last movement. Thank you. 
so that was really, I mean, dramatic. Intense. Very, very, very intense. Very intense. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. Just fantastic. Now, the next season is autumn. Celebrates the peasants with songs and dances, the pleasure of the bountiful harvest, and fired up by Bacchus's liquor, many end their revelry in sleep. Everyone is made to forget their cares and to sing and dance by the air which is tempered with pleasure and by the seasons that invite so many, many out of their sleepless slumber with fine enjoyment. The hunters emerge at the new dawn with their horns and dogs and guns are depart upon their hunting. The beast flees and they follow its trail. Terrified and tired of the great noise of guns and dogs, the beast, wounded, threatens languidly to flee, but Harrod dies. Whew. <laughs> it's pretty full on autumn, isn't it? It's probably got a different feel in Europe than it does. I'm sure it does. But, you know, I think what we find in autumn is that there's the return of the clarity that we heard in spring. You know, thank God we're over the summer. We're back to normality. And it opens with the celebration of autumn. You know, that people are getting drunk because they're having a great time. They've survived the chaos of summer. They've had a good harvest and they're playing and enjoying. Andy, my sense of listening to that initial part of autumn, it's like, it is what you're saying, it's a relief. Yep, exactly, exactly. I imagine that in this period, the populations were more seasonal driven anyway, different foods, different times, and that's why the seasons were celebrated. It was such an important thing, especially when you think about Europe, you know, you do have four distinct seasons. And so they could very much, thank God, summer's over. You know, our summer sort of wafts into to autumn all the time and vice versa. But they're much, much more distinct in this period. And if we look at the slow movement, the slow movement's been described as people having a good sleep. I think the second movement is all about them having a hangover. get what you're saying about a hangover it's like oh, each note is heavy it's to play so Just heavy. let me relax I'm trying to you know get my head off the pillow no it's not going to happen but the last movement i find so interesting because this is the hunt 
And in the hunt, we don't just hear the music from the perspective of the hunter, but we also hear the music on the perspective of the beast that is being hunted. We hear the revelry of going out to the hunt. We hear the guns, we hear the dogs, but we also hear the death of the animal. You know, this is really, really so atmospheric. You can hear it's a bit of a battle between the hunters and the hunties. And you can hear the anxiety and the anguish by the animal. You know, the animal's been shot. It knows it's about to die. It's trying to get away. You can hear it. And then you hear the victors at the end going, Yahoo! We, we killed the beast. Quite amazing. And we finish, obviously, with winter. And the sonnet says, To tremble from cold in the icy snow in the harsh breath of a horrid wind, to run stamping one's feet every moment, our teeth chattering in the extreme cold, before the fire to pass peacefully, contented days while the rain outside pours down. We thread the icy path slowly and cautiously for fear of tripping and falling, then turn abruptly, slip, crash on the ground and, rising, hasten to cross the ice lest it cracks up. We feel the chill north winds course through the home despite the locked doors and the bolted windows. This is winter, which nonetheless brings its own delights. So, you know, again, I think that we hear the ragged and relentless daggers of ice when we hear the beginning of this movement. fear going into winter. I think so. I mean, cold is really scary, isn't it? I find that music sounds really icy. Like it really mm. does have this cold feeling about it. I, I imagine, you know, hoveled around fires and if you don't have proper lodgings yeah. even, you, you end up like Vivaldi on the street. And that really brings us to the second movement, which is all about feeling nice and cosy inside your house, hearing the rain crashing on the roof above. It's interesting that you said crashing on the roof above because you can hear the droplets. Yeah, yeah. 
and the beautiful melody coming through behind it. And then that final movement, everybody is outdoors, they're walking on the path, trying to walk and not kill themselves because of the icy ground. And as the, the sonnet says, somebody falls down and hurts themselves. And you can imagine, you know, you fall down and you hurt yourself, you break a hip, you're a goner. It's all over Red Rover. That's right. All over Red Priest. That's right. <laughs> Vivaldi's Four Seasons in a nutshell. He's a treasure, old Vivaldi. (laughs) He is a treasure, he definitely is. But very different from the next Four Seasons that we're going to talk about now. This is Astor Piazzolla's Four Seasons. Piazzolla was Argentinian. He was born in 1921 and he died in 1992. Very much part of the 20th century. He was a tango composer. He was a bandonian player and an arranger and he really was the guy who took the traditional tango and turned it into a new modern style which we call nouveau tango as in new tango which incorporated both jazz and classical music in the tango he and his family moved to new york when he was in 1925 his parents worked for these long hours and he was left to his own devices as this little boy looking after himself he would listen to his dad's records and there were these tango orchestras and so he became really familiar at a really young age at the tango and then he started having lessons and his father found a bandonian in a pawn shop in 1929 and you're going to ask me what is? A pawn shop. <laughs> a bandonian. I don't know what it is, Andy. A bandonian is part of the squeeze box family, if you want to call it that. It's sort of like an accordion, but different. Instead of the complexities of the accordion, the accordion can play lots of chromatic notes and a whole a lot of other stuff. The bandonian has a much more simple sound, but is actually a very difficult instrument to play. Let's have a listen to the difference between a bandonian and an accordion. So the interesting thing about the Bandonian is it actually originated in Germany. It came with sailors to places like Argentina, Uruguay, Lithuania, and became very, very important in those countries. It's driven by bellows and it's a reed instrument. So inside the instrument are reeds, not like a clarinet where you blow it. But when you push air through the bellows, the bellows create a sound through the reeds. 
and it's one of the very, very important instruments in the history of tango. In 1935, Pizzola was asked to go on a tour with this guy called Gardel, who was one of the great tango players, and his father refused to let him go, which was actually a bit of a godsend because there was a huge plane track crash on this tour, and Gardel and his entire orchestra was killed. As an older man, Pizzola used to laugh and say that if he'd actually been on that flight, he wouldn't have been a bandonian player, but a harp player, because he would have been one of the angels going to heaven. Oh, that's quite, that's quite a sliding doors moment, I that's suppose, right. for him. That's right, sure is. But he became one of the great bandonian and tango musicians, not only inspired by the music of Argentina, but also inspired by composers like Stravinsky, Bartok and Ravel. And he won a grant to go to Paris and learn with the legendary French composer Nadia Boulanger. This was huge. He went with his wife in 1954. While he was there, he tried to write in a typical classical way. He was sort of getting rid of the whole idea of tango. And at one stage, he either showed his music to Nadia, his tango music, or he played his tango music. And and she was like, whoa, what are you doing here? You know, forget about going down this classical route. This is the route you ought to go on. You, you know, you need to go back and you need to write this fabulous new tango music, incorporating the ideas of old tango with your knowledge now as a composer. That's what he did. And he returned to Argentina with this new sound and completely revolutionized the whole idea of tango, where he not only has the tango sounds, but jazz improvisation and classical music in it. Long way from Vivaldi. Long way from Vivaldi. But he also decided to write a Four Seasons. But this Four Seasons is the Four Seasons of Buenos Aires. So the interesting thing about Piazzolla's Four Seasons is that he wrote them separately. He started off with Summer in 1965, and then he wrote Winter in 1969, and then it wasn't until 1970 that he got around to writing Spring and Autumn. And he never actually thought that there were going to be a set. It was only sort of once they were all there that he went, oh, wow, this is a great set, and decided to stick them together. So let's start with autumn because he starts with composed it for a cabaret band but then it was actually and a cabaret band is violin piano um, electric guitar double bass and bandonian it was later 
in the 90s that it was actually orchestrated for orchestra and solos. So again, it's taken on this totally different form. And it was this Russian guy who decided to rejigged it to make it fit more with Vivaldi's concept of the four seasons, where we have a small concerto for each of the seasons and three movements, more like we have in the idea of Vivaldi. I got a sense of the streets of Buenos Aires from that, you know, mm. like, like even cars beeping and things like that. Exactly, exactly. You can hear, just as we could hear in the Vivaldi, the life of the villagers. In this one, we hear the life of the city, a big, bustling city in autumn. Let's have a little bit of the other section of autumn. It was raucous, it was outrageous. But then we have this cello cadenza sort of almost coming out of nowhere. It's like, you know, Piazzolla's being at his most cheeky and sublime at the same time. It's such an exciting movement. If we move to winter, winter in Buenos Aires is at its core a tango. And we hear these long, smooth, characteristic passages. We also hear snappy, short passages sort of interwoven between the two of them you know typical of a tango but it's not the traditional tango it's a mixture of the western sounds african sounds european sounds argentinian sounds all coming together and also jazz influences all coming together in this fabulous tango of winter There's a sadness about it, isn't there? Mm, There is, especially with the orchestral introduction. It has this sort of long sadness about it. And then when the violin comes in, it does again. It has this poignancy about it, doesn't it? I can still sense, you know, the influence of tango as well. Oh, very much so. Yeah, totally, totally, very much so. I mean, that is really just tango. I mean, or nuevo tango, Mm. the new tango. The spring, the movement of the spring, it starts with a fugal opening. The fugue comes back to the Baroque period. Bach was a great guy to write lots and lots of fugues. And a fugue is where you have a melody that comes in and then 
that melody starts and then it goes on its merry way and another voice comes in starting exactly where that other melody started and then another voice and another voice. It's, it's almost like a cannon on steroids. And it's really interesting that he starts spring almost with a nod to the Baroque, which is what we're talking about with Vivaldi. I think in all forms of art, there's often nods and winks to predecessors. We also hear in the spring, it's as if he's taking us for a ride around Buenos Aires and we can absorb the sounds and the scent of the life, not only during the day, but the life at night too. Let's have a listen. Like spring is about regeneration and you know the beginning and it feels like that. It feels like plants sprouting and it also, yeah, the liveliness of the city, I get yeah, that. You, you're absolutely right when you talk about the plants. You can almost see those little buds sort of popping out of the earth, can't mm, you? Absolutely. It's just terrific. Now summer is so unlike the summer of Vivaldi. You know, when we're talking about summer with Vivaldi, we were talking about the terror of summer and how summer brings these thunderstorms that can cause havoc to the harvest. It's so different from the summer of Vivaldi. This is one of the most exhilarating pieces. It's colourful, it's sensual, it's evocative of this fantastic summer day in Buenos Aires. The rhythm of the tango is absolutely everywhere. It sort of pulsates through this piece. We can hear the heat and the sweat sort of dripping off you. Have a listen to the beginning. It's like the sunset. I feel like that there's there's dancing and yes, it's sensual and also it's also a bit there's those abrupt sounds that are slightly discordant yet very evocative. And and almost sort of like dirty. It's sort mm. of like a bit a bit ragged in in mm. its sound. 
But, you know, you, before you said, you know, was Pizzola thinking about Vivaldi when he was getting to this point? Well, in this movement, absolutely, because here we have this frenetic summer. If it's summer in the Southern Hemisphere, what is it in the Northern Hemisphere? Cold. Exactly. And what does Pizzola do? But he adds a little bit of Vivaldi's winter into this movement. I thought there was a bit of a lament in there. Mm, it is, isn't it? That's beautiful. Yeah, no, I can see the lament. Yeah, it is a lament. And what happens in this movement is that the winter keeps on trying to be involved in the summer. You know, it's almost like this fight between summer and winter in this movement, between the Vivaldi. And, I mean, it, it almost sounds like an Argentinian form of Vivaldi, doesn't it? It sounds like it's Vivaldi, but it's just got this Latin undertone to it. It's quite exciting. You know what I love about both these pieces is there's something about humanity's relationship with nature. We can do what we want, we can create these buildings and all this modern stuff, but we still are beholden to the seasons. Mm, that's totally right. And so in many ways it's it's very grounding to hear our relationship with the way the world spins mm. for centuries now. Millennium. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that that's a beautiful sort of almost conclusion to both of these pieces that, you know, it's amazing how a composer who's writing music for instruments these things that are man-made some of their most evocative and fantastic music and both Vivaldi's Four Seasons and Piazzolla's Four Seasons are probably their best known works and as you said are about how both of these composers took nature and gave us this spectacular music. Andy thank you so much as, as we said, this is a bit of a collab with Live at Yours. Mm-hmm. When is the Live at Yours concert the on? The concert is on the 27th and 28th of June. It's at the Great Synagogue in Sydney. For the Live at Yours crowd listening, just remember we've got this podcast. We're, up to, we're in season two going through the orchestra at the moment, but you can go back and listen to our series one which was more things like rhythm and what is music what is music melody we have a lot of fun with it and hopefully you're all learning something from it and i hope to see a lot of you on tuesday night at live at yours this podcast has been produced by eathals.com.au 